Support for this podcast and the following message come from the University of Alabama, offering over 70 premier bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degree programs in a flexible online format through Bama by Distance. Learn more or apply today at bamabydistance.ua.edu. Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's roundtable podcast about what we are watching, reading, and listening to. I'm Linda Holmes. I'm the editor of NPR's pop culture and entertainment blog, Monkey See. This week, we get mysterious with Sherlock, and we pause for a few remembrances. And as always, we'll close the show with what's making us happy this week. So stick around. Earlier this month, an NPR listener tweeted... After downloading the NPR One app after being told to for the thousandth time by an NPR podcast, thank you, thank you, thank you. Hashtag insert shamed face here. Don't wait like our listener did. NPR One is ready to make driving, cleaning the house, or your post-holiday escape better. Find NPR One on your app store now. Before we get started here in Historic Studio 44, let's go around the table. Stephen Thompson, what do you do at NPR? I am a writer and editor with NPR Music. And Glenn Weldon, what do you do at NPR? I write about books, comics, and other stuff for the NPR website. And with us this week in our fourth chair is Barry Hardiman. Barry, what do you do here at NPR? I'm a books editor at Weekend Edition. That's right, we're always happy to have Barry with us, and she's here for our first show of 2017. Good Happy New Year. Good to see everybody. Aww. Happy New Year. Hi, everybody. Happy New Year to all of you who are listening. So the first thing we're going to talk about is Sherlock. Sherlock, a modern-day adaptation of the rather famous detective created by Arthur Conan Doyle, comes to us from the BBC via PBS, and it's just launched its fourth season, by which we mean, in this case, its fourth set of three movies. It's won a number of Emmys, including for its lead actors, Benedict Cumberbatch, who plays Sherlock, and Martin Freeman, who plays Watson, as well as some BAFTA awards and a Peabody. It's hugely popular in the UK, and it has performed well for PBS, so we figured it was time to dive in. So, Barry, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you here with us to talk about Sherlock is that you are a Sherlock person. Is that correct? I am a Sherlock person. I love Sherlock. And, I mean, I was a fan of the original mystery series. Um, I grew up on it with Jeremy Brett with his sort of odd cold fish. He had sort of almost blue skin and Mm -hmm. those odd (laughs) eyes, and I really loved him. I really like this adaptation, but um, for me, I almost entirely like it when Sherlock is being Sherlock and Watson is being Watson, and when those two are not on the screen and working at their height, it doesn't work as well for me. It feels long. Yeah. Um, I think Benedict Cumberbatch is just tons of charisma. I love it. I love the way that they've updated it, these little modern day, for instance, the one, one that we're be talking about today is called The Six Thatchers, which is based on an original story, which is The Six Napoleons. And, you know, I love these little callbacks to the original stories. I think they're very, very clever. I love the brother. I love all that stuff. And for me, they always feel a little fat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does anyone else feel that way? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How about you, Glenn? How do you feel about these? You know, I don't think anything is ever going to come close to that that first episode, A Study in Pink, back in 2010, mm-hmm. uh, because that's the moment when you figure out how they're going to interpret everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You come together, you have this amazing amazing chemistry between Martin Freeman mm-hmm. and Chumley Bublinsqueak. And that <laughs> that thing just comes alive, when, as, as, as Barry said, when they're together. Yeah. But you also get, how are they going to introduce Moriarty? How are they going to introduce mm-hmm. Mycroft? What is yeah. Mycroft going to be like? Right. It's that electricity. But I also think they have been trying to get away from the quaint drawing room, Sherlock Holmes and, and John Watson Sable crime 
formula from the very beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They have been trying to push him into this international intrigue uh, yes. action hero right. yes. mm-hmm. uh, from, the, from the start. And I get it. That's the way you, you update it. It's the way you address terrorism. It's the way you address, you know, the, what, what's going on in the world today. But as much as I... I understand why they have to do it. I kind of want them sitting in a room. And and every so often, uh, they will come back. And this show is very, very self-aware. So it's not like it's what it's doing. It's not something they've been trying to do. Mm -hmm. In The Abominable Bride, which was the Victorian era that came between freestanding episode that came between right came between the third season and the fourth season. There's a little throwaway line. It says, "Well, at least this one has a proper murder in it. Like this case (laughs) is a proper murder." And that's that's a little joke. And you know, there's a montage in the Six Thatchers where they're just solving crimes. Boom, 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 boom. It's intentionally absurd. It's like if the dog can swim, then the brother-in-law did. Right. Right. Boom, 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 boom. boom. That's right. I love that stuff, Mm -hmm. and I understand what they're doing. They're actually pushing, and it's the same guys, Stephen Moffat and Mark Gaddis. Stephen Moffat was a showrunner for Doctor Who. Uh, Mark Gaddis uh, wrote on it for a while. They're pushing Sherlock into the sort of doctor swashbuckling mode. Right. I love this series. I, I love that chemistry between these two. I kind of want it to be more conventional than it mm-hmm. wants to be. Right, right. How about you, Thompson? Yeah. I know this is a show that you have marathoned in the past and kind of kept up with, mm. and you don't keep up with a ton of drama series, so I'm interested in your kind of affection for this. I, I, I don't usually keep up with a lot of drama series. In this case, this is the show that I watch during Thanksgiving with my mother. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and my mother is a is an old diehard masterpiece theater lady. Uh, she loves Sherlock. She loves mystery. Uh, and and it's, it's something that my mom, my girlfriend, and I sit on the couch and watch together for like you know four and a half hours. Ooh, a, I want to come next year. Yeah, come, yeah. come join <laughs> us. Um, and and I really really enjoy it. But I, I agree with kind of everything you guys have said. I think the format of doing them as as 90, 95 minute movies, they feel long. This episode that just aired, The Six Thatchers, has these tonal shifts that are uh, you know somewhat inevitable from how much they're trying to pack in. But you're kind of grinding through what feel like a couple of episodes stitched together. Mm-hmm. At, at its best, I love this show, but it is always in danger of kind of flying off the rails and being something I don't like as much. And even you mentioned A Study in Pink, the first episode, Glenn. The second episode yeah. of this show is terrible. Oh, it's terrible. terrible. I almost stopped. Yeah, yeah, I almost did too. I mean, if, if I hadn't had my mom and Katie like, no, 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 power through. No, you're right. It's bad. But this <laughs> one is, I mean, it's full of all this like this Chinese crime syndicate, the black load. Anyway, oh, absurd. do not like that second episode. Skip if, it. if you are starting from scratch, power through the second episode. Yeah, I, I so where I come down in the show, I think I agree basically with where you guys are coming from. I greatly prefer it when it's the closer mystery stuff. Mm-hmm. And I also agree, and I think it's no surprise to anybody, I would enjoy this show more if it were 60-minute episodes rather than 90. And I realized as I was as I was catching up on it, and this is one of those shows where when you say you're behind on it, it can mean you haven't watched it in like three years because mm-hmm. <laughs> they have long, long delays. <laughs> and you've missed one episode. Exactly. Well, yeah. and they have long, long delays between when it's on. So one of the things that happened with me when I sat down to watch this was I started to catch up because I hadn't watched the third season. So first I watched the third season before I watched the new one. And as I watched it, I thought, 
I really enjoy this. Why do I think of this as something that's a little bit of a chore? Homework. And then as it stretched on, I thought, oh, it's the length of the episodes. They always wear on me a little bit. And I think with a mystery, pacing is really critical. And I think with any show that's trying to do a number of different things, right? They're trying to do a mystery. They're trying to do uh, longer arc stories about the good guys versus the bad guys. And so some of that stuff I think could be structured a little bit better in shorter episodes. But that's a kind of a... This is how they're doing it, right? So I'm past that. That's fine. The thing that I find most fascinating about this show is that relationship between Holmes and Watson, which I think is at the heart of every Sherlock adaptation, really. But this one maybe in particular, because I do find it a fascinating dynamic. And this show, as you know, if you read about it or follow fandoms of it, is, you know, I would put it in a category of a lot of shows where anytime you have two lead characters, no matter what their genders are, you have a, and no matter what their textual sexuality is, right. you will have a certain number of people who are kind of always thinking that they should get together and make out and have sex and all that stuff. To say this show is no exception is a wild <laughs> understatement. However, I will say, I think there is a lot more textual support for that than there is in a lot of shows, despite the fact that it's not textually a romantic or sexual relationship. And the way that I come down when I look at that relationship is that for Watson, it is platonic but intense. And for Sherlock, it is romantic but not sexual. Right. Mm-hmm. And because I think there is a quality to Sherlock's attachment to Watson that only makes sense particularly in cultural and literary traditions, as a romantic attachment. And I say that as somebody who has a huge respect for shows where people can have attachments that are intense but not romantic. I don't necessarily think Watson's attachment to Holmes is romantic. It is intense. And I didn't necessarily think Mulder and Scully's, for example, Mm -hmm. relationship to each other was really romantic until they decided it it had to be. I didn't think in the nature of the show it was. I do think here... Sherlock's attachment to Watson is romantic in a sense, but not anything he would ever act on and not necessarily. Do you know what I mean when mm-hmm. I say romantic, but Absolutely. not sexual? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. don't know. And they, they, they play around with it a little bit. They, mm-hmm. they, they'll actually refer to it as text in, right. the, in the way that they interact with the public and the way the public views them. And it's one of the things. And I Mrs. Act- Hudson, who they live right. with, has right. A, a little bit where she sort of has assumed that I there was some you, kind of. Yeah. 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 And I, I, I like that about the show. I like the way the show plays around. It's got these kind of super fan characters mm-hmm. who are clearly yeah. mouthpieces yeah. for actual fan sure. yeah. theories. Mm-hmm. I enjoy that the, And they play around with that in a, in a way that is fun and gives a lightness to the show. I think the show embraces its own silliness mm-hmm. in yeah. a way I enjoy. All that stuff where, and whenever Sherlock Holmes goes into his mind palace, yeah. Yeah. it is the yeah. most ridiculous yeah. thing. And I think the show just goes ahead and leans into that as hard as it can. And I think it makes a difference. It's kind of like, which tropes are you going to love in this show? So, like, I love those. Those are my favorite ones. It's when you see them starting to fight in a glass house in front of a pool that you've lost me because I'm (laughs) like, well, that's a Bond trope and it doesn't have anything to do with the mind palace that I love. And so, and there was a lot for me, this episode was really, really heavy on settings, tropes. Punchings around glass. Oh, God. They didn't pay off in the silly way that a lot of the, you know, that some of the textual stuff on the screen does. It didn't it didn't pay off for me. Yeah. And then on top of that, they go on forever and ever and ever. Yeah, and one thing, I, when you talk about this last episode, I don't want to spoil kind of there are major events in this episode, as there often are in these sets of three episodes. But I think there is a question that I ask. There is a primary female character, Mary, 
And there are some major developments that involve her. And very often she's been involved in kind of peril and Mm -hmm, mm upsy-downsy. I have felt at times like her role is primarily to drive the relationship between the two of them and to set up dynamics between them rather than necessarily to exist for her own sake. And I'm wondering, Barry, if you... Uh, Absolutely. And in this one, there's there's a lot of particular moments like that for me where it's where a plot point that is, you know, clearly there in service of the Sherlock Watson Mm -hmm. uh, friendship means that the Sherlock Watson thing doesn't pay off as much for me. And then she becomes kind of a cardboard thing as well. Yeah. It also ends up doing this thing where, you know, as I said at the beginning, I, Sherlock is best when Sherlock is being Sherlock. And there's a lot in this episode, a little bit having to do with Mary, where Sherlock is actually not quite himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, Glenn, in particular, you spoke about the fact these guys have also worked on Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. The The female characters on Doctor Who have come in for a lot of the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Glenn's making a, I have a lot to say. No, phase. not a lot to say. It's just that anybody who has watched Doctor Who under the Stephen Moffat uh, Uh, showrunning era Mm -hmm. is not going to be surprised that women characters are just there to drive the plot and to make the make the dudes look better. I mean, that's just what he does. And and he's not strong uh, with women. But let's talk about uh, choices. Let's talk about acting choices. Andrew Scott as Moriarty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. I love this guy. (laughs) This guy. There's a first scene where it's a you know, spoiler, it's a big reveal on what his actual mm-hmm. identity is at the end of uh, The Great Game, the third the third episode of the first uh, season. And he is making choices. <laughs> he is making choice after choice that is bigger than the last. And you're like, really? This does seems to break not only the reality of the show, but reality. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is reality. big. But man, it works so well. And yeah. so when he goes away, as he might or may not, who can say? Uh, it's It feels like that's a thing that the show needs. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. That's just, it's cutting out. <laughs> it's, as he says, heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of heart, I did want to talk briefly about the sign of three, mm-hmm. the, uh, the wedding episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To me, this was the perfect episode of this show in terms of the way it's structured you get a bunch of emotional payoff from the lack of emotional payoff in other episodes and you also get to me this wonderfully self-contained mystery yeah where they actually show you clues to help you solve the puzzle Mm -hmm. instead of it being a bunch of hand waving where like if i'm watching at home i'm not thinking like he has a girlfriend he neglected Mm -hmm. eight years ago and Mm -hmm. she had a brown cat. You know, the the stuff when he's like solving, when he's like reading a person and and coming up with things that no one else could ever come up with. This episode really felt like a self-contained mystery that I could solve as a viewer in a way that I wish the show had a little bit more Mm of. Mm -hmm. It's amazing to me that this show, again, there's only, what, 10 episodes so far, and yet there has been a lot of change in the characters, particularly, well, just just Sherlock, (laughs) <laughs> he is getting less of a prick and more of a human being. That's mm-hmm. going to go back and forth, of course. Watson isn't changing. Watson's hair is changing. Yeah. <laughs> Watson's hair is getting better and better, better and better. And better. <laughs> uh, yeah. There is a moment, a hugely emotional moment, where uh, the character of Watson is going through a lot of emotional pain. He's bent over. We only see the top of his head. And the only thought I had was, that is some good hair. Yeah, <laughs> what a really, swirl! It's, it's a, a little swirl. It's a little crispy. There's yeah. some crispiness mm-hmm. to it. There's yeah. some product, and that's a little involved. bit of shine from yeah. the grayness. I yeah. know I couldn't think of that. Distracting. Else so yeah. his hair is changing, but how is Watson changing? Mm. I mean, big plot things are happening to him. We're about to go into a you know, uh, the, yeah. the, their relationship is about to be tested yes. yet again. Mm-hmm. But we know what's going to happen. We know that these guys are these I guys. Assume, I assume so. And I and I the another thing that I do enjoy about it in terms of 
the character, particularly of Sherlock, is that I think the way that they have incorporated his what Stephen was talking about in terms of reading people and reading clues and things like that. The way they've incorporated that with a certain amount of use of text on the screen and right. use mm-hmm. of visuals, I do think is really clever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they mostly keep that from turning into a gimmick, but use it really helpfully mm-hmm. to advance the story. It is a show that I think is really inventively shot. And, oh, totally. Um, not only for the purposes of that, but there are ways that they transition between a memory and and the present, uh, or ways that they transition between, you know, perhaps something that someone is imagining right. uh, versus what's actually happening. And also play a- around a lot with time. Mm-hmm. Um, play around a lot with slowing down or speeding up or freezing time in ways that I think are really smart. So I do think the need to be able to examine something in order to make a mystery hang together is something that in terms of the direction and editing and kind of blocking and scripting, they've figured out to a to a great degree. And they're economic about the text, too. I mean, I you know, it is not a it is there, but it is not a constant presence. I think it is very smart. You must imagine that somebody doesn't edit at the end of an episode (laughs) like, no, that's too much or that's, too you know, because Mm -hmm. I think I almost never think it's it's too much. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's showy. It's self-aware. It's very self-aware. Mm-hmm. It's very yeah. self-aware. Mm-hmm. And it's and and God, when it gets it right, it's so fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. BBC Sherlock via PBS. We enjoy it. You can find it on PBS. You can find it on demand and a variety of platforms. The early seasons are on Netflix. And so uh, come and find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet at us at PCHH. And tell us what you think about Sherlock. Are there Sherlock fans out there who like to talk about it? Oh, I think there are a few. <laughs> <laughs> are and they when... all on Tumblr? Yes, they are. <laughs> That's right. When we come back, uh, you know, at the end of 2016, there were a few people who passed away who we wanted to make sure to remember before we get on with things in 2017. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of them when we come back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from HelloFresh, the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed to eliminate food waste, along with step-by-step recipes for delicious meals designed to take 30 minutes to make. And everything is delivered in a special insulated box for free. Pop Culture Happy Hour listeners can receive $35 off their first week of deliveries. Just visit HelloFresh.com and enter promo code HAPPYHOUR on your first purchase. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. Uh, You know, it is the beginning of the year and it tends to be a time to take stock. We have, despite the fact that we had new shows, we have not actually been around the table together in a couple of weeks. So we thought that we would take a pause and remember some of the people who have passed away in 2016, including some very recently. Please take note before we do this. This is not any kind of a comprehensive 2016 in memoriam. That is way too much for us. And also, I would never presume to, you know, have the the resources to include everybody. I'll give one example. I don't think we have necessarily a Tribe Called Quest expert here to talk about Fife Dog. (laughs) So there are wonderful remembrances of lots of different people. There are also people we've talked about earlier in small batches. But we did want to talk about some folks. And uh, I'm going to start with some recent ones. I think while we were on the break, probably one of the biggest stories was Debbie Reynolds and her daughter, Carrie Fisher, dying within a day of each other, Mm -hmm. Uh, which was one of those stories that made me think, you know, you often hear about that with soulmates, yeah, um, yeah. which people associate with married people. 
it sort of uh, made sense to me, given mm-hmm. what I know about them. Um, Barry, you talked a little bit about Carrie Fisher and her novel writing. Yeah, yeah I, I um, discovered Carrie Fisher as I, this is I think I've admitted this to you before. I really didn't see Star Wars as a child. I saw I, I, I was introduced to Star Wars as an adult. So she was not Princess Leia in the same way. I was aware of the hairstyle. And that mm-hmm. was it. And I was aware of her of actually more of Debbie Reynolds being her mom because I grew up on Singing in the Rain. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I was like 18, I picked up a copy of Surrender the Pink, which was her second novel, in an airport bookstore. And I read it on a plane. And, you know, it's kind of got an early Carrie Bradshaw, but smarter, more brittle, uh, more real feel to it. And it was the first time that I felt that I was reading a book that was really for me that wasn't because I really I knew I was a reader. But, you know, up till then, I'd been kind of reading, you know, Dickens, which was great. But, I, you know, I did not actually think I was going to be Stella. Um, Whereas I could imagine myself to be Dinah in Surrender the Pink. And all of the women in her fiction, they have big jobs. They have interesting jobs. And and Surrender the Pink, Dinah is a soap opera writer. And you really get a sense that that's a hard job to be super creative. And Carrie Fisher is also in Soap Dish, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 And she knew the genre. They have big jobs. They have these wonderful networks of friends. And uh, they are not terrific with their uh, relationships with men. But it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And that was a, uh, for me at 18, was a revelation. And when I saw Postcards from the Edge, which she wrote the screenplay for and the novel, and I will will say, I actually think the movie is a better Mm -hmm. piece of art than, which she is responsible for, than the book. It's, It's like that's where she discovered that particular trope of I'm going to be a woman who has all of these great relationships. I'm going to make a ton of mistakes mm-hmm. and these relationships are going to hold me up and it's not going to be a guy. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah. you mentioned Star Wars, obviously. Mm-hmm. She also did, you know, a, just a ton of other things that people mm-hmm. have been remembering oh over God. the last couple of weeks, including When Harry Met Sally, uh, in which she's so funny and wonderful. She's in the Blues Brothers. Yep. Catastrophe. 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 Oh, yeah. She's so Catastrophe. funny. Catastrophe. Mm-hmm. She's, uh, she, it, it's really interesting to me to look back at a career like that where mm-hmm. it's so defined by for for so many people by this one iconic character who I loved seeing again mm-hmm. in uh, Force Awakens and I really wanted there to be more of her yeah. in the next one which apparently she did shoot right. um, yeah. prior to her death so maybe there is more of her in the next one and her Princess Diarist uh, her most oh, recent uh, memoir just so funny even back then as she was on those shooting those films as yeah. a very very young very nervous completely over her head in, in her own words uh, actress where she would you know, Star Wars means a lot to me, Barry, because like that's just means a lot to me. So, you know, the scene where we are introduced to her and she's got this weird, crazy faux British accent uh, <laughs> that comes out of nowhere and then disappears for the rest of the movie. <laughs> she writes about that. She yeah. writes about how she had this take on the Leia mm-hmm. character immediately. But again, I, I will just echo what Barry said. As a prose stylist, you know, I was gonna—I wrote about her as a prose stylist for the for the blog. Yeah, you did. Because uh, there were plenty of memoriams out there about the gold bikini, and um, too many about the yeah. gold bikini. Yeah. Uh, and I knew I, I couldn't write about the gold bikini in the yeah. same way that other people could, or that I wanted to. I just wanted to write about her as a stylist, and yeah. that prose—you mm-hmm. could bounce a quarter off oh, it God. because it's coming from a very specific, mm-hmm. highly knowledge- knowledgeable, knowing place. She so just riddle, yeah. she just knows herself and knows the world and. Uh, she wants to kind of bring you in on it. It's so great. I was, I've been trying to think about why specifically the Carrie Fisher death hurt so much and why there seems to have been so much like public outpouring specifically about, about her. And it's not just, I think it's not just her work and it's not just Star Wars and the way that has imprinted on so many childhoods. I think when you have the sense of losing somebody 
who's body mm-hmm. of losing somebody mm-hmm. who's like the truth telling mm-hmm. ass kicking mm-hmm. alternate universe pal of mine I didn't get the chance to befriend exactly. her mm-hmm. and, she, yeah. and and like talk smack mm-hmm. she, with, with yeah. her. And she was also incredibly bold about talking about mental illness yep. before mm-hmm. a lot yeah. of other people yes. were. She was very open about her own struggles. There's a great sort of description of her explaining bipolar disorder to right. a kid yeah. at Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. And there are just a lot of really wonderful tributes to her. Glenn has one, as I said, and there are a bunch of other ones. And I, and I was so happy that people were passing around the line from her book where she talks about being told she couldn't wear bra in Star Wars because mm-hmm. there weren't any bras no in, underwear space. in space. <laughs> There's no underwear in space. And she has this line about, I want to be remembered in my obituary as she died bathed in moonlight, strangled by her own bra. <laughs> right, and right, it's right. such a good line. And I was yeah. so happy that people really did kind of pass it around because I think she would have gotten a kick out of that. Barry mentioned Debbie Reynolds, her mother, who I think a lot of people do know primarily from Singing in the Rain if they go back that far. I feel like I have to note was 19 when she made that movie. Oh, oh uh, my God, it's and, incredible. And it is shocking how good mm-hmm. she is in it. Yep. Um, my friend Mark Hirsch often points out that there's a little number called All I Do Is Dream of You, mm-hmm. which is really sort of a throwaway. It's really just introducing her as kind of a dancing girl who's jumping out of a cake at a party. But that number is actually incredibly charming, and it's because of her, and it's because of how sweet she is and how good she is. In addition to that bit, Debbie Reynolds did some fantastic work, all her, not only in The Unsinkable Molly Brown, but also mm-hmm. much later when she was in, she was Grace's mother on Will and Grace, mm-hmm. and she was hilarious on that show. So, so funny. Mm-hmm. And so, so funny in like In and Out and in mm-hmm. Mother. Mother. Mother, mother I adore. Yeah. yeah. She the is. Cheese. There, there's such a blithe, happy ferocity to that performance. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. She's terrifying. Yeah. It's true. She, Debbie Reynolds was wonderful and really, I think, came into her own in a way as an actress playing mothers of yes. adult women or adult men in Mother. I like that she had a really rich phase of her career that was about that same bodiness that Carrie right. Fisher had kind of introduced into. And that that was the thing that connected them a little yeah. bit, that she had this richness in her life because of Carrie Fisher, which was about, you know, being a mom to yeah. these children. And also, I mean, one thing we should remember, I mean, which I think relates so much to Carrie's novels are, and I'm calling her Carrie because mm-hmm, everyone sure. does, uh, is this thing that her mother was this woman who had the worst relationships. I mean, like, yeah. hilariously bad yeah. relationships. Literally, like, legendarily bad relationships. If you don't know this story, she was married to Eddie Fisher, who then went off with Elizabeth Taylor, mm-hmm. and they had a very, very public mm-hmm. smash-up of that relationship. Mm-hmm. And then Elizabeth Taylor went on to a very public couple of smash-ups with Richard Burton. As, as Debbie yeah. Reynolds then went on to say she was really looking for Richard Burton and not for my husband. Yeah, and if you've never seen Debbie Reynolds be really, really funny, I would point you to a very similar simple moment close to the end of in and out where there's sort of this I am Spartacus um, moment at this theater where everyone is standing up to support this teacher who's played by Kevin Klein, who's her son, who's just been sort of publicly outed in a way. And everyone in the town is standing up and saying, I'm gay, I'm gay, I'm gay. And she stands up and she says, and I'm 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 a lesbian. (laughs) And it's so funny the way she says it. Anyway, Carrie Fisher, Debbie Reynolds. 
both fantastic. Yeah. Both fantastic women. We also wanted to talk for a minute about George Michael, who died just recently. That one was mm. a gut punch. Hurt, yeah. man. Yeah. That was weirdly Hurt. a gut punch. First of all, uh, Linda had an essay specifically about George Michael's song, Freedom 90. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't read it, it's called The Individualism and Fist Pumping of George Michael's Freedom 90. And I love, first of all, the way you break into why it's a good song, Mm -hmm. but also talking about what that song represents in terms of generosity of spirit. And as I've thought about George Michael's death, I've just been taken by how frustrated he Mm -hmm. was for like almost his entire career career, and how sad it was that he came along like two generations too soon Mm -hmm. in terms of being able to be a pop star who was embraced by critics as a good pop star. Yeah, it could be, right. I think optimism would really have been kind to George Michael. Optimism would have been his saving grace Mm -hmm. and he didn't get to have that. So he's sitting there, I mean, the, the album title... The album that produced the song Freedom 90 is Listen Without Prejudice, Prejudice. Volume 1. Yeah. Which is the most oh pretentious album title but, but, maybe but ever. But it delivers. Yeah. It, it does delivers. Deliver. It's a good record. I love every it, song on that It is a album. good record, but you can hear how tortured he is in the name and of that so. album. He wanted to be taken seriously as a, as a craftsman, and he felt he wasn't being taken seriously. And if you listen to the records that he made after that, they tend to be these like ponderous, lugubrious, mm-hmm. portentous ballads that stretch for six and seven minutes. And it's clearly like what he what he's decided being a serious artist entails. To me, it's just so sad mm-hmm. that more of his music didn't get to capture freedom, didn't get to know. capture I mean, joy. I think he wanted to do a lot of different things. And I think ultimately he got to a place where he was doing a lot of the stuff that he wanted to do. But I think you're right that a lot of the stuff that people listen to, not all, but a lot of the stuff that people listen to after they heard that he had died was a lot of that, like, mm-hmm. fun pop. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. And, mm-hmm. you know, I do think your two decades too early statement is really spot on, I think, mm-hmm. Stephen, because if he hadn't arrived at the peak of MTV, yeah. you know, yeah. if MTV had come and gone by the time he came on the scene, we would appreciate him in a different way. Mm-hmm. That's true. Uh, yeah. It's just he's bound to those mm-hmm. visual images, to yeah. those white shorts, yeah. <laughs> to yeah. those jeans. Yeah. They were bound to him, really. <laughs> they were bound yeah. to him. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's it's tough. Yeah. And, and you did a wonderful p- way of, of separating the, the mm-hmm. music from the, from the visual imagery. Yeah. And if you haven't read it, there's also a really wonderful piece at MTV News from Ira Madison talking yeah. about George Michael's impact on his thinking about sexuality yeah. and which is a whole other piece of kind of his Mm -hmm. history that I think it's very important to kind of think through if you haven't investigated that thoroughly as part of his kind of pop image as well as his his kind of public image. So George Michael, Carrie Fisher, Debbie Reynolds, Barry, you had uh, some authors that you wanted to talk about from this year as well. I did. And it's funny. I don't, are you, is this just something about being 40? But are you guys feeling that everything is like a, like your childhood is just being pulled apart? Mm -hmm. Because that is the thing that is, you know, like I learned to dance to, to freedom. Like, who is going now? It's the boomers, the young boomers in this case. And the boomers are our icons, our heroes. Yeah. And so so it's been really, so in the, so in the realm 
realm of authors, uh, especially recently, um, Watership Down, Richard oh, yeah, Adams, yeah. which you, Glenn, you sure, must Sure, sure, sure. Which is just such a, you know, I haven't read it in years, and I don't, I have no idea if it would hold up the way it did for me as yeah. a child. This is this epic tale of rabbits, which is kind of like, it's got a Lord of the Ringsy feel, um, but I loved it so much, and it was really one of those books that I, I looked forward to reading yeah. with my dad every single night. And then the to lose Natalie Babbitt, uh-huh. there were three books of hers, and they made me a reader. It was The Search for Delicious, The Eyes of the Amaryllis, and Tuck Everlasting. Mm. Um, I- I'm sure you've all read Tuck Everlasting. It is an amazing book. Everybody should should read it. Um, I think what's so great about that trio for me is that The Search for Delicious is this odd little fairy tale. You know, it's a prince searching for what delicious is. And then Eyes of the Am- Amaryllis is this emotional book about a girl going to visit her grandmother and solving a mystery of the sea. Her range was insane. And having gone back many times to read Natalie Babbitt, the prose, line by line, hmm. it holds up so beautifully. So for people that haven't read her, get those books for your kids and read them yourselves. They are so moving and so beautiful. Obviously, another sort of, you know, this is a huge one, and I think Linda have talked about Harper Lee. Sure. Yeah. You know, I don't know how you guys felt about that, but this was a real toughie because it wasn't really the way I wanted her to go. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I think it's worth, like, having a, a thought about her legacy, whether or not, no matter how you felt about Ghost at a Watchman and how it arrived. Mm-hmm. She has bookended her career, yeah. still having this national conversation on race yeah. that she wanted to have. Mm-hmm. Right? There were so many people that just struck me so deeply as as really sort of defining my relationship to books and therefore my relationship to the world. Yeah, yeah. Stephen, I know that you wanted to say uh, something about Sharon Jones. Yeah, boy, this was the year of musician deaths mm-hmm. in, in so Ugh. many ways. But uh, Sharon Jones for me was just a real kick in the shins because she left a lot on the table and she performed with like decades of bottled up excitement about performing Mm -hmm. and when I think about somebody like Sharon Jones it's like man she had like had she not gotten sick and died like you she would have been out there kicking ass at 80 you know she'd have been out there like Mavis Staples Mm -hmm. just like owning giant stages releasing new records and being awesome yeah Mm -hmm. again this is just a sample. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> and real quick, uh, we lost Gary Shandling this year. Yeah. And a lot's been said about his influence, uh, the influence of the show, The Larry Sanders Show, on things like Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm. That's obvious. You can see that through a line. Less obvious is the influence of a show called It's Gary Shandling sure. Show from 86 mm-hmm. to 90, which was a multi-camera sitcom with a single-camera sitcom sensibility. It was all about deconstructing the format of the sitcom because he had written a lot of sitcoms. The reason he became a stand-up is because he was sick and tired of the sitcom formula. And the influence on other shows like Larry Sanders, but also on shows, any show that is as self-aware as as a lot of shows are today, like 30 Rock, like the Comeback, like Arrested Development. A right. lot of mm. these shows which are about what we project to the world and how that's pretty much for many people all we have. Yeah. Uh, it's really smart, really smart. And, it's, and you can see a difference in his affect from It's Gary Shandling's show between 86 and 90 which his affect is his stand-up affect, which is just grinning all the time, mm-hmm. uh, huge teeth, smiling, but a pained smile, yeah. to something considerably more nuanced and darker in Larry Sanders. Well, uh, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about all of these folks. And uh, again, tweet at us or find us on Facebook and talk about some of the people that you miss if you like. Again, I'm glad that we could do this because we've never yeah. done a Remembrance show, and I'm glad we could. All right. When we come back, it's going to be time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? So come right back. 
1A is NPR's new daily show inspired by the First Amendment. Hear the news, great guests, and topical debate, all framed in ways that make you think and engage. Each day, 1A will champion your right to speak freely. Check out 1A with Joshua Johnson from WAMU and NPR on the NPR One app or visit npr.org slash podcasts. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment, What is Making Us Happy This Week. Stephen Thompson, what is making you happy this week, buddy? Over the break, I saw the movie Lion. And Linda, you have recommended Lion to me. Other people have recommended the movie Lion to me. I love this movie. For those who haven't heard about Lion, it is about a a boy in an impoverished rural region of India who winds up on a train, kind of trapped on a train that drops him off in the city then known as Calcutta. Uh, He's ultimately saved and adopted. And as an adult, he goes on a search for his home based on what dim memories he has. You know, he was like five. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's based on a true story. Based on a true story, uh, based on his memories and with the help of Google yeah. Earth. The hook mm-hmm. is Google Earth. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and I want to focus on about part of what I loved so much about this movie is also one of the things I loved about Moonlight. In terms of the casting, In Moonlight and in Lion, you start out with child actors. In the case of Lion, it's this wonderful performance by this kid named Sonny Pawar, who does work as an an actor in this this movie. And over time, he shifts to the adult version of this character, who is played by Dev Patel, who has become very, very handsome. (laughs) You don't say. I almost didn't notice. It's not the the reason to see the movie, but it is true. (laughs) And... The casting decisions that go with both of those, they have made a decision not to worry about the fact that Sonny Pawar and Dev Patel do not look anything alike. Mm-hmm. The characters, the three different versions of the kid in Moonlight don't look very much alike. And it does not matter. Mm-hmm. We're sitting there as viewers like we can suspend disbelief. We know these are not the same person. Mm-hmm. When you look at Lion and when you look at Moonlight, they're so much more focused on like what is the best possible performance we can get. What will inject the most feeling? And so I really appreciated that just as a casting decision. In addition to the fact that I watched it on a plane and like blubbered all over the place. Wonderful, mm-hmm. Glenn Weldon. What is making you happy this week? Uh, two things. Uh, I started playing the video game Final Fantasy XV, which is an open world action RPG. What that means is a uh, giant, giant world that you can kind of go around in. I have a long history with the Final Fantasy games. I love the Final Fantasy games. What I like about this one is that uh, you don't have random encounters anymore. At least you do, but you, you can avoid them because I don't like random encounters just as a general <laughs> principle. Uh, but the the combat system historically in the Final Fantasy games is something that I just love. It's called turn-based. What that means is you line up your characters. They all line up in a, in a very straight, uh, rigorous line, and then you enter commands to them, and then one at a time they go and attack the big thing. And you can tell them to heal each other, and it's all very, like, time stops while you plan what they do, and then you see them do it. It's coding. It's coding. It's <laughs> it's very it's very uh, comforting and tidy, and I love it. Uh, Final Fantasy XV dispenses with that completely, and uh, everything is kind of now just, you just go into combat, and it's all on the fly. And I don't like on the fly, so it's taking me a while <laughs> to get used to this combat system, mm-hmm. and it also doesn't seem as intuitive to me the way you skip between uh, different uh, tables and things like that. But anyway, Final Fantasy XV, I'm just getting into it. I love it a lot. Second thing is, a film called The Dressman 
Matchmaker, which is a 2015 mm. Australian film that just got released uh, in the United States in September. It's now streaming. It's on demand. Uh, directed by Jocelyn Morehouse. It's got Kate Winslet. It's got Judy Davis. It's got Hugo Weaving, because it's Australian, <laughs> and that's the law. Right. <laughs> and it's got uh, Liam Hemsworth, who one of these things is not like the other. Uh, it's based on a novel by Rosalie Hamm, and it's set in 1951. Uh Kate Winslet plays a very accomplished, stylish woman who looks great in the dresses that she designs, who returns to her rural, cartoonishly rural, Australian uh, town 25 years after that town did her wrong to enact her revenge. It's so, it's, I'm not sure it's good, but I like it. (laughs) Okay, so here's the funny thing. I saw this at Toronto last year Uh in 2015, and I was kind of fascinated by it, and a lot of other people really just treated it like a gigantic, terrible flop. And I think the end is stupid, but I think the... But I think think a lot of it is really good. Thank you very much, Glenn Weldon. That makes me happy that Mm -hmm. that is making you happy. Barry Hardiman, what is making you happy this week? So the BBC has done this gigantic cycle of all of the Wars of the Roses plays. This is the entire cycle of Shakespeare's plays that chronicle the death of the Plantagenets, the Wars of the Roses, and it's just this giant piece of Tudor propaganda, which I love so much because you know how I feel about Tudor propaganda. Now, the most recent one, because the last, you know, the final uh, moment in that downfall is Richard III, of course, played by Sherlock. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can sort of see he's doing a little bit of like a, he's hamming it up, he's got some long hair and it's a little bit, but Mm -hmm. by the time he is playing chess in the now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by the it it is really really good i will also say it is worth going back and watching all of them it's richard the second it's both henry the fourths it's uh you know a couple of henry's and this project is called the iron crown it's called the hollow crown which is what uh richard the third famously got he got the crown but it was hollow when he got it anyway what's so great about it is that um i think what they've done is they've actually made it this is a dirty word a little bit, more accessible to Mm -hmm. a modern ear. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just adored it. It is so beautifully shot. It is so beautifully put together. They've moved some scenes around in a way that I think even Shakespeare would have to admit was a very, very good note. (laughs) Um, And it's, it's really, really worth sinking your teeth into. So, you know, hollow crown, do that. Thank you very much, Barry Hardiman. Like Barry, I have been sort of sinking my teeth into uh, serious uh, things. Sort of in pursuit of New Year's, I'm going to learn a lot and be really, like, you know, uh, productive. And one of the things that I discovered, and some of you know these, people are familiar with them, uh, the Great Courses, which is this um, thing where... They offer a lecture series from college professors, and you can get them on video, you can get them on audio. The one that I've been listening to is an 18-hour class, essentially, on, it's called Food, a Cultural Culinary History. And the professor is uh, this guy named Ken Albala, and you sit down and he explains to you, starting with like the hunter-gatherer people and the how the agricultural revolution, and then you go through, you know, different parts of the world at different times and spices and why spices caused wars and the arrival of different kinds of cooking and different kinds of eating. And uh, of course, anything like this, like food to me is so much a part of like food is what culture is, you know, food like arts and things like that, is always so intertwined with everything else that's going on in the world. Now, if you look up the great courses, you will find that they charge for these like a couple hundred bucks, which I would not be able to afford myself. But 
I can get them on my Audible subscription. So I got it from Audible just as an Audible book with my Audible credit. And also, it was pointed out to me on Twitter, your local library may very well have access to these. It turns out uh, my local library does. Like I said, you can get them on audio or on video. Again, it's called The Great Courses and Food, A Cultural Culinary History. So that is what is making me happy this week. Uh, Before we get to the very, very end, I will say, if you noticed last week that we had a nice shout out to Sam Sanders (laughs) at the end of the episode Cat Chow was on, just a little production glitch. These things happen. But you should definitely follow Kat. Kat was on that show. Kat Chow, K-A-T-C-H-O-W. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow me at NPR Monkey C. You can follow Stephen at I Dislike Stephen or Glenn at G-H Weldon or Barry at B Hardyman, H-A-R-D-Y-M-O-N. You can follow our producer Jessica Reedy at Jessica underscore Reedy and our producer emeritus and music director Mike Katzev at Mike Katzev, K-A-T, Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides our in-and-out music that you are boogieing down to right now. So thanks to all of you for being here. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks. And thanks to all of you for listening, and we will see you right back here next week.